Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Leslie Schweitzer-Miller about her debut novel, Discovery. This is a dual-time story. One part explores the life of Abbe François Béranger Saunière, an unconventional priest who lived in the mountains of southern France circa 1885. The main story, however, revolves around a pair of academics of our own day, Giselle Gelli, a biblical scholar, and David Reddick, an archaeologist who agrees to accompany Giselle on a hunt to discover the truth about her uncle's murder, which, although never solved, seems to have had some connection with Béranger's Saunière. We start with the priest's arrival in his parish. Rennes-le-Château, France, June 1885. Two hours before sunrise, Father François Béranger's Saunière crept out of his parents' house as silently as a shadow relieved to get away without any last-minute drama. It was a maneuver he'd perfected as a boy, when he'd sneak a book under his shirt and hide in a massively overgrown blackberry bush, ignoring the thorns and inevitable bloody scratches on his arms and legs. Today he headed directly toward the horse-drawn milk cart waiting for him, behind the fountain, a silhouette in the gloom. All his valued possessions, including a treasured copy of Les Miserables, were neatly packed into a large satchel carried in his left hand, while he absentmindedly brushed his cassock with the right, as if telltale berries from the past might give him away. A morning such as this is a blessing, he murmured, hoping to appear calm and composed as he climbed up to join the driver on the rough-hewn wooden bench. It would be unseemly to let this stranger get a whiff of the elation he felt. It should be a pleasant journey. Without even a grunt of acknowledgment, the cart began to roll. Thick grey mist blanketed the ground and drifted over their route, as if a magician had tried to obscure the border between road and vegetation. The plough-horse inched along, oblivious. And now, please join me in welcoming Leslie Schweitzer-Miller. Hi, Leslie. I look forward to talking with you today. Hi, Carolyn. It's so great to talk to you, and thanks for the opportunity to talk about discovery. You're a practicing psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, so you certainly have experience with emotional states and the human condition. You're also an artist, and your works include the lovely painting on the cover of Discovery. What made you decide to add fiction fiction writing to the mix? Well, thank you for the, uh, the kind words about the cover because um, it's a painting I love that is actually called Rennes-le-Chateau. Um, and it wasn't painted for the cover, but uh, uh, I, I enjoy seeing it there. Um, and what made me uh, decide to write this book was... Um, so many things, but this is actually not the first book I ever wrote. I've written others that I never tried to publish, 
and I, my husband and I wrote one together that we wrote, uh, he wrote the man part, I wrote the woman part, but we never published that. And I've written children's books forever, um, none of which I tried to publish. So Discovery is just that when I wrote it and the amount of work I put into it, I said to myself, this one is going to get published. What drew you to this particular story? Well, I think um, it was a confluence of a number of events. I became aware of the mystery surrounding Rennes-le-Chateau by a, watching a documentary. And then at the same time, there were articles being published about Professor Karen King of Harvard. She's the, I believe, the Hollis Professor of um, Religion at Harvard, and that she had been given a fragment of a papyrus that she was examining that she believed to be uh, a called the Jesus Wife Papyrus, uh, the Gospel of Jesus' Wife. And so I began to think about that and about what would people of faith think if it turned out to be true that that was what it was. Um, my husband has always been interested in the history of Christianity. And we had talked about writing another novel together. And we started out actually writing this one together, but it became clear he was thinking about something entirely different than I was. And I, it became mine because I like romance. And although he is a great romantic, he doesn't like writing romance. And so that was what drew me to the story and to starting to formulate how it came together, although I have to say there are many different varieties of this book, and I probably have an entire book that's been deleted from this book with characters that no longer appear because it took shape over time. I didn't start out to write this. I started out to write something like this, but it took a different shape as, as it developed. And as you've indicated, the essence of the story that we have now, um, and this isn't a spoiler because the prologue lays out the question um, right away, um, it's the idea that Jesus of Nazareth was married to Mary Magdalene. Um, various characters accept that view or reject that view, and we certainly aren't going to say where the book comes down on it, but um, could you go into the, the question a little bit more about where this idea comes from historically and what it was that made you center not just the book, but you know, there's a double, double uh, present past plot, which, and both of these plots are centered on this question. Right. So... Um... I would say that I've always loved this kind of construct. Let me start with that. One of my favorite books is Possession by A.S. Byatt, 
which does the same thing. It's in the present, but it goes to the past. And what I love about that is showing the connection between the events of the past and how they impact us today. And I especially enjoy allowing the reader to know things like the reasons for what happens uh, that the present day characters don't know and can only guess at. So you as the reader, I think, become the insider and the character of the priest, whose name is Berenger Saunier, who lived in the late 1800s, you get to know him intimately and you know some of his motivation that the present-day characters couldn't possibly be aware of. Uh, Of course, Jesus of Nazareth and Mary Magdalene, they call her Marie Madeleine in France, um, have long been thought by many scholars to have been married, although it is not what most people believe. Um, And I think most people stake out their positions and then try to go about proving that what they believe is true. But I'd like to make it clear, I don't have a position on... I don't take a position on that, really. I have proposed what if they were married, what would happen? And it's sort of, I think, a device in a way. What if there was proof? What would happen? Because nobody can know the truth of what happened then. Um, So I read a lot about different beliefs, different different beliefs that different scholars have because there are people who have done a huge amount of research uh, on, on this area, in this area. And um, one that comes to mind, although she's not the most famous of them, of, of you know, Elaine Pagels has written on this, Uh, She's well-known in this area, as well as Dr. Karen King and others. But Margaret Starbird, uh, who is written, I think, five or six or maybe even seven, I'm not sure, books, wrote A Woman with the Alabaster Jar. And she started out as a strict believer in the official gospel. She's a professor of Christianity, and she started out to disprove the premise that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married. But after all her research, she came to believe they were married, and she believed they had a daughter named Sarah. And I love, uh, she uses a term, she says there are fossils in the legends and myths that we have today about everything. And she points out that um, Simon the Canaanite, who's, who's an apostle and mentioned in the Gospels, is called Simon the Canaanite. Now, in the original Greek, and the Gospels were written in Greek, 
actually the Gospels are not the originals, they are copies that were made in Greek. But he is called Simon the Zealot because Zealot and Canaanite are synonyms. So Canaanite in Hebrew is Zealot in Greek. And of course, the reverse is true. And so she extrapolates from that, this is one of the things she does that I found fascinating. She extrapolates that the wedding at Cana, which is a place very, scholars have not been able to actually find a place called Cana in the ancient world, uh, that she says this could have been the wedding of the zealots, meaning Jesus and Mary Magdalene, because Jesus was a zealot or known to be a zealot. And, um, and that the, the miracle that he performed there, according to the Gospels, his first miracle, which was turning water into wine, she really sees that as a metaphor. And that it could be that he was turning humanity into something richer and more satisfying. So she, she also says... Um, that the that Mary she believes Mary was pregnant, that she escaped to Egypt with uh, Joseph of Arimathea, and uh, that she lived in Egypt where it was very friendly to Jews, and there were Jewish colonies there at that time for about twelve years with this little girl Sarah. She says Sarah in Hebrew means either queen or princess. But that at that time, 12 years later, that their lives became threatened also, and people were searching for them, Romans were searching for them, and that's when they sailed to France. And there is a place in France called Saint-Marie-de-la-Mer where they celebrate the... uh, on, in, in May, May 23rd to May 25th, I think, they have a celebration in honor of St. Sarah the Egyptian, who they believe arrived there in 42 CE. I don't know exactly how they get that date. Uh, so she was one of the ones who felt very certain, and she has all kinds of proofs that she goes through and all kinds of little tidbits that she puts together as her fossils that to her demonstrate that they must have been married. And in addition, of course, um, it it is thought by many that... Not as, Jesus was Jewish, we all know that, and that he preached in the temple, and we all know that. But at that time, Jewish men weren't allowed to preach in a temple unless they were married. They were thought to be incomplete. And in fact, I discovered that in... Uh, Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, in Aramaic, and in Greek, ancient Greek, there is no word for bachelor or celibate, which I found kind of remarkable, but that's because you weren't supposed to be that uh, in, in that time. So that's part of um, 
so many other things as well that I came upon in in my research that are very convincing. Of course, there are people who are not convinced and refute any of that, and I read that as well. But um, I felt that there were enough people who thought this was certainly, they thought it was the truth, I thought it was certainly a possibility, and that they, these scholars who are people of faith, didn't think that should make any difference. They were fine with that. It, it sounds like a really interesting question, and since you're writing a novel, um, you don't have to defend it academically, which is an interesting right. part. Um, I would like to move you to France at this point um, so that we can talk about your story and your characters as well as the, the historical background. So um, the first character we encounter is uh, the gentleman you mentioned, Abbe François Béranger Saunière, and uh, he is an actual historical character, as I understand, although obviously you are, um, shall we say, adopting him for your fictional purposes. Um, he's not well known, though, so tell us a little bit about him and then more generally what kind of person he is in your mind and in your novel. Absolutely. So Sonier was I uh, had seen a documentary about him, as I mentioned before, and he totally captured my imagination. And I think I sort of fell in love with him a little bit when I heard about him because he is such a renegade and a maverick. Um, and he was someone with such an extreme character um, I present his life pretty accurately, and I did a lot of research into him and his past and how he grew up, and uh, and as you know, we traveled there, and I read his diaries, and I so I, I feel like I sort of got to know him very, very well, and I did adopt him, as you say. Um, he was the eldest of seven children, and he was a very smart and extremely handsome sort of sort of uh, you know Italian movie star handsome. And he was a very he was very willful and charismatic, and he believed passionately in the teachings of Christ, but he was at war with the church. He didn't believe in their rules. He didn't believe in the rules of celibacy. He didn't believe that he had to stick to scripture when he was teaching. He wanted to enlighten his people about great books and about Paris and about all sorts of things. In any event, the great mystery of, of Rennes-le-Chateau and what makes it so compelling is he was sent there sort of as a punishment because he had been dallying with some women um, in a higher higher uh, parish. And they sent him to this little mountaintop village, which had 300 people living in it, a totally impoverished place. To get up there is quite a hike. It's about an hour's hike. 
there was nothing there, nothing. The church was crumbling. It was a 13th century church that was really, you know, not not in any way habitable. And there was no presbytery for him to live in. There was nothing. He had to, there was no salary. And he went there and he lived there with a family. And he became extraordinarily wealthy. And that is the mystery is of Renoir Chateau, the unsolved mystery of Renoir Chateau. Nobody knows where he accumulated this money. And what he did with the money was he bought up land around the church. He renovated the church and made it into something beautiful. But he built gardens and he built a belvedere and he built an orangerie to look at over the valley. And he built the Tour Magdala, which looks like a little chess piece hanging on the side of the mountain. And he stocked a library where he invited the townspeople to come. And he had... um, monkeys and parrots in the garden and he was a he considered himself a poet and he considered him so he designed it all and he paid for it all and i i stick to that in the story and you see him doing it but you also get a sense of of what an ethical man he is in his own way, but that he is determined to to be guided by his own conscience of right or wrong. This, as the story goes, and this is in the book, but I've elaborated on it, uh, of course, it's a novel. When he is renovating the church, he comes upon a document hidden in one of the pillars which is where they used to hide documents. And he can't read it because it's written in Aramaic. So he takes it to the bishop, who was a friend of his, and the bishop sends him off to Paris. Now, I'm not going to say what happens in Paris because that is personal part of that. It's an invention, and it's, I think, kind of delicious, and I'm going to leave that to for people to read about But he does go to St. Sulpice, and he leaves uh, the document there for it to be translated. And they lose it, or so they say. And he never gets it back, and he cannot forgive them. He feels totally betrayed, and he didn't know what it said. And people have speculated on what it might have said, uh, that it might have had... um, a history of the Merovingian dynasty, or they may have had some secret that that they needed to keep secret from inquisitors. Because remember that that church was built in the 1200s during the time of the Inquisition when they were coming and murdering the Cathars. So nobody knows till to this day. I invent also that in addition to that, when he moves the altar stone, which he did, that there is an entrance to the crypt beneath. Um, and that is there. He finds, he makes this discovery of a document that has been left there and um, and that becomes and is such a sensitive piece of information 
that ultimately he has to uh, bury it again elsewhere. Yes, I think we don't want to say what what that document is because finding out is crucial. So I'm not saying, but that it's it's something sensitive and something he's um, uh, and but he he himself. So much of what I say about him is based on some historical evidence that I've come upon. And the other thing is he actually has uh, a woman in his life, a permanent woman. Her name is Marie Denarnot. If, uh, if and when you go to visit Rennes-le-Chateau, someone has actually painted a painting of them on the side of a building. Uh, as if they are the king and queen of Renoir Chateau. Very sweet. Um, because the town called her the priest's Madonna, and she lived with him, and he, in the end, left everything to her. Everything. Not anything to his family or the church or anyone else. Uh, and they were best friends. They were theoretically lovers. They were protective of each other throughout his lifetime. So that really um, encapsulates the 19th century part of the story, although there is perhaps one other element that we'll get to in a minute. But that's that's only half of the story. The, the actual framework of the story is starts in 2012 and involves uh, Giselle Gelli. Uh, tell us a little bit about her and about David Reddick, who she encounters early on. Absolutely. So Giselle is uh, 45 years old. She is a kind of a damaged person because damaged by the fact that she was she always felt like she had been a disappointment to her mother. She was very close to her father, who was an open high, open-minded, really lovely man. She spent the first seven years of her life living in the U.S. when he was teaching at Columbia, and then she returned there. Um, he was a biblical scholar, and she follows in his footsteps. We meet her two years after his death, and she's having a terrible time recovering from that. Her mother had had predeceased her father, and she had remained really uh, kind of seclusive and afraid of getting involved in a romantic relationship, despite her loneliness. Um, she was close to her sister and a niece and nephew who live in New York, but she was closest to her father and having a difficult time after his death, finding her way and finding a real meaning for her life. Um, on the other hand, she, like her father before her, she's an insightful person, and she has a certain innate gumption. She's proud of 
who she is, although she doesn't, she doesn't have the confidence. As I said, she's damaged. She's always feeling like a disappointment. But she's proud of what she knows and of her heritage and of her um, uh, knowledge base. And she's proud of being open-minded. Um, and when she meets David, at, she meets him at a conference. Now, he is an American. He's an archaeologist who works in Israel. But he's an unusual fellow. He's a little bit older than she is. He's approaching 50. He had been a literature major in college and a football player, and he was the apple of his mother's eye. He has enormous confidence and ego strength. As as do people who grow up surrounded by love and support and kindness because he could do no wrong for his mother. And she made a point of fostering and developing what she called his softer side because she was concerned that a big athletic guy would lose track of that part of himself. And she his mother loved old musicals and love songs, and so therefore he became conversant with them and came to love them because she loved them. Uh, he enjoyed reading poetry, knew a great deal about poetry, none of which was familiar to Giselle. He meets Giselle the year before the book starts. And he meets her at the conference. This is a yearly conference of international biblical scholars, which is um, a real conference. And it really did take place in London the year before and then in Amsterdam, as I cite. He had been invited to speak the year before as an archaeologist trying to convince people to see things, you know, to accept archaeologic findings and and... Um, there's a lot of controversy about that among biblical scholars. And he had gotten into an argument with one of Giselle's colleagues, Charles, who we'll talk about later. And Giselle comes to his defense. And Giselle um, captures his imagination and... He likes her fire and her open-mindedness, but there is something in the, it's a kind of a magical connection that sometimes happens between people. And she, that year, this is only alluded, it's, it's said in the book, but in one sentence, she turns down his dinner invitation then because she is still really mourning her father with whom she normally came to this. This is her first year coming to the conference without her father. And he returns to the conference in Amsterdam specifically to see her. And in the original book that I wrote, when I say the original, I mean, of course, this has been edited and re-edited and changed around a million times. I don't, I say, of course, maybe not everybody does that, but I did. And the original version, the very first line of the first chapter was David saying 
she had been, not, not, he's not saying, it's being said about him. She had been on his mind for a year. That's how we meet him and that's how we're introduced. Now the, that chapter is written from her point of view um, and not his. But she captures him and he just has this feeling about her that she is the right one for him. And everything that um, that she does is is okay with him. He he's he's not bothered by their differences. He only hopes that their differences don't bother her. And they do a little bit, I think. Oh yes. They do, but uh, if you haven't guessed it yet, I am a total and unapologetic romantic. (laughs) And I believe in kismet. And I believe that love is the most powerful force in the world when you have the capacity to really genuinely love with all your heart. Now, Giselle is a woman of faith. But she's somewhat open-minded. She doesn't uh, she has become a little bit soured on the church hierarchy. Uh, David is, as I said, a very tolerant guy, and he doesn't need to convince anybody of the wrongness of their ideas. He's, he's willing to accept other people's ideas. Giselle... Um, admires Mary Magdalene a great deal, partly because her father used to tell her stories about Mary Magdalene, partly because Mary Magdalene in some ways represents for her the mother she would have wanted, the mother who was kind and preached love and was independent and... um, And she also feels that Mary Magdalene, not she feels, she knows, that Mary Magdalene was very mistreated and demeaned by the church because she had been proclaimed in 500-something. She had been proclaimed a prostitute, uh, and she, her name was not cleared until 1969 by the church although there was never any evidence in the Gospels or anywhere else that this was true. People have made a case for it because of many things I won't get into, but uh, it, it, there is no reason to believe that it was true. And so she takes that very personally. And there is also, although I don't speak of it directly, this is the time of the, the dawn of the Me Too movement. This is the dawn of women thinking about their place in the world. And she is one of those women who sort of accepted her place in the world. And this is an awakening for her as well at this time that she um, is sort of resentful of the treatment of women 
by the church and the misogyny in the church and certainly in the ancient church, the total, total misogyny of, of the ancient times that she is very familiar with and that women were just considered, um, you know, considered to be owned by their families, their husbands. They had no rights of any sort. Uh, and she is becoming somewhat resentful. The more she is aware of that, the more she personalizes it. And that's, that's part of who she is becoming and the change that takes place for her over the course of the, of the book. So let me interrupt you here because we're, we're going to be winding down soon, but I do want you to talk a little bit about Charles. In brief, Charles is a smirking, narcissistic man whose family goes back through generations in the Languedoc, and he has an obsession with Giselle, and uh, he thinks if he hangs around long enough, she will succumb to his what he considers his charms. And she puts up with him politely because they're colleagues at the same university and the same department. But um, it becomes obvious to the reader, although not to her, that he's stalking her. And it's not clear why. Is it because he's so obsessed with her or is there some other reason? She deludes herself that he's annoying but harmless. But... Um, there is, I just want to mention briefly, I know you said we're winding down, so I'll try to talk a little faster. <laughs> she, there is another character in the book and the, and the rationale for David and Giselle to travel through France and to France, and that is uh, Father Antoine uh, Jolie, uh, who is a real person. And he was really murdered, and he was a real friend of Sonier's, and he was murdered in the presbytery in his own church. And a note was left by his side that said, Viva Angelina, which translates into Long Live the Messenger. It's a murder that was never solved. And, and when David and Giselle travel through France, they visit a lot of sites that are sacred to Marie Madeleine. They go to the Grotto, they go to St. Baume, they see Marie Madeleine's skull. Um, but they are there ostensibly to learn more about this murder because it haunted Giselle's father. And for her, it's putting closure on his death. She promised her father she would look into this. And I think until she does this, she is not at rest to sort of go on with her life and have the relationship that she would like to have. That's a good, yeah, that's a good summary. And that, that makes a lot of sense. And of course, Charles is actually somewhat, how should I put this, interested in the same question. Um, but yes, uh, Giselle doesn't seem to realize that, in, in a way, it would be even more disturbing if he kept showing up uh, where she and David are with no other um, reason on his mind than stalking her. Um, but, he, but he does have addition, additional Motivation. Yes, 
Yes, and I think, um, and again, I think it's it's plausible because that note was real. That really happened, and nobody ever discovered why or what happened. And this man, uh, together with Sonier and a third man who was an amateur archaeologist who was also a priest, uh, Henri Boudet, um, they were called the three confreres, and they spent a lot of time together, and they enjoyed each other's company. And then one of them is murdered and had apparently was frightened because he had been locking his doors for weeks before the murder. And it was, uh, of course, very disturbing to Sonier. And there are two, these two mysteries. is how, how Sonier became so wealthy and, and then this murder. I mean, it's right. But certainly in novelistic terms, you would expect there to be a connection. Right, right. So what would you like readers to take away from Discovery? Well, I think that's pretty simple. I, I hope that they will find Discovery an enjoyable story and a thought-provoking story. Uh, there's lots of information in it, historical and geographical. But most importantly, I think it's a book of ideas. And it, I hope, demonstrates the power that love has to change attitudes and to bring out the best in people and to foster um, hopefulness among people because it's, I, I think it's what drives the book. It drives Sonier as well. It's not only the contemporary, it's not only Giselle and David, but her love of her father, Sonier's I suppose, love of people, you know, that he built all of this for his little flock uh, out of his love and that I think love is an enormous, enormous force for good and for mental development. And what is next for you? Are you writing another novel? I am. I'm working on three different things right now. I've started a new novel. I'm only a couple of chapters in. It will be, it will be taking place during the 1940s. It's historical fantasy. It's going to have a little bit of back and forth in the time thing, but um, not in exactly the same way. And there will be nothing controversial in it. That's all I have to say about it at the moment. Oh, you say that now. (laughs) I'm also working on a nonfiction book called uh, something like, this is in a hard and fast title, How to Be the Grandest Grandparent, Stay Out of Trouble, and Why It's Important. I have a lot to say about that as a psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, grandparent, uh, former pediatrician and um, grandparent of a blended, mixed-up, crazy family with every kind of relationship in it you could possibly imagine. So um, I'm having some fun with that, even though it's not the fun of writing a novel. And I'm also... Uh, trying to, I think, about to try to get an agent for one of my children's books. 
that's written for early readers of chapter books with a lot of magical, fantasy, clever, fun things of, uh, that I'm also illustrating, that I've illustrated. So I'm not sure what my focus is, except that whenever I sit down, I sort of go back to my novel. <laughs> so I guess that's what has captured captured my heart. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Well, thank you again so much. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. And today I've been talking with Leslie Schweitzer-Miller about her debut novel, Discovery. Find out more about her at www.lesliesmillerauthor.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me, my website, and my books at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network. Thank you.